you will get the fee that you believe you're worth and that you can defend to a client. Welcome, closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is Season 3 on Profit. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week, I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 units or 1,000, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Luke Edinger, the director of Robert C. White & Company, a residential property management company in Connecticut focused on SFH primarily, a little bit of mix of some other property types as well. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what it looks like to make a dramatic shift in business, what it looks like to get intentional about driving profit and to understand what is possible with really just focus and intention around turning a business from low profit into a cash machine and from beyond. Luke was one of the folks that we had participate in the financial benchmarking study that was facilitated by Profit Coach. And there's a great story here. So we're going to dig right into it. Welcome to the show, Luke. Thanks, Jordan. Happy to be here. I'd love to start here. How did you get into the business? I actually have a big company background. I started out in financial services, worked for Prudential, was on the product side. I left for a while and helped one of my brothers start a greenhouse business. I went to business school for a couple of years, ended up working for a management consulting company, McKinsey. I did that for about five years where we're working for the biggest, uh, you know, Fortune 100, not Fortune 500 on their biggest problems, frankly. And so did that for about five years, loved the company, but the travel with a new family was, was pretty rough. So um, decided to transition out of there and had always talked to a different brother about starting a business with him. We were starting to invest in, in real estate, um, duplexes, triplexes in central Connecticut. And we decided to start a property management company. And that's, that's kind of the foundation of it. There wasn't a lot of this is the perfect opportunity was we're doing this. We like this. We want to work together from being in financial services. I saw the recurring revenue side of property management. I thought that was very, very attractive. And we got going from there. I love that. So first off, I love the humility of going from big box enterprise to jumping down to SMB world, because there's a certain level of humility that is required to even condescend down to SMB world when when you're at that level. I mean, I've got enough of a taste to know what uh, Valley folks or corporate folks tend to think about SMBs. Did you have to swallow pride at any level to, to kind of come down to the lowly world of property management? No. Uh, so I, I think in my heart of hearts, I knew that I was always going to start something. I wouldn't have said, hey, raise my hand, property management will be it. But um, this is where I am. And this is the business that I'm building right now. Because my background is with big businesses, the harder transition is applying all the big business stuff to the stage I'm at at a small business. Sure. Oh, yeah. The, the humility is in um, recognizing there's so much I don't know on the small business side of what I need to do to get to a level where, frankly, I'm more polished and know how to achieve results. 
I love that. Yeah, that's another way to look at the humility for sure. There's just a lot of rules that a lot of white paper, best in class advice that simply doesn't apply at this stage of the business. Yeah, yeah. We did a project for a company and we literally saved them a billion dollars, right? And if I did the same project for my company, I'd save 2000 right? It's just the scale of the things are so different. And so you just don't attack the same problems. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start off talking about the co-founder relationship. You A, had a co-founder, B, it was a brother, and C, if I'm not mistaken, this was your first rodeo in terms of your first um, small business that you're running. Is that correct? Um, More or less. We had a a greenhouse business that I did work with a different brother for a period of time, about two years. I was helping him build it out. So I'm one of five boys, and um, we've all been involved in that greenhouse business a little bit. But this is the first thing I was doing with this this brother, and... um, This is the first thing that was more intentional for me that I viewed as a company that I was building with him and not just a company I was helping a brother out with for a while. Let's kind of dive into the this relational aspect because there's so much kind of caught up in the co-founder relationship and the easy naive assumption is to always go in 50-50 and just to say, hey, you know, and especially I'm thinking metaphorically, but in your case, literally, hey, brother, we're going to go after it, hard charging, we're just going to kill it. But when you wade into the opportunity in terms of contribution, skill set, circumstances, there's a lot of flux and most operating agreements do not create enough space to account for the potential change in circumstances as things happen. How did you approach things from an operating agreement level at the outset? And what would you do differently in retrospect? Because it was a a brother um, and there was a lot of trust and we knew each other quite well. First off, we knew we had very complementary skills. So that worked out really, really well. You know, I'm more operational. I'm more um, systems and everything else. And he's just a natural gifted salesperson. We didn't do street 50-50, but we were pretty close. I was 51-49. I wanted the veto. Um, I wanted to make sure that if it was sticky, that somebody was going to make the call. And we decided that it was going to be me that made the call. Besides that, we tried to divide up the labor and, and just be real honest and fair about the fact that this was going to be a lot of legwork in the beginning and not a lot of payoff. We frankly came to it with different backgrounds. Because of the work that I was doing, I was able to take no pay for a longer period of time. He had to take pay earlier. Because of the trust between us, a lot of those things worked out pretty smoothly. If this was a different situation without or that it wasn't a family member, I think I would have viewed it a little bit differently. Luckily, we grew relatively quickly so that we were able to work all those things out. Um, And we both respected each other's strengths a lot. It wasn't like I felt like I'm punching harder than he's punching. Mm -hmm. And how many years ago was that that you started the business? Um, So we formed everything in 2012. We started everything in earnest in sort of spring of 2013. Got it. So about five years and change into the business as of right now. What is the current state of the business in terms of just the rough parameters, doors, headcount, et cetera? Zach left the business um, the end of 2016. I bought him out and we're at about 280 doors right now. Um, We've got two property managers, an office manager, uh, back office in India and three leasing agents. All right. Now the buyout, walk me through that situation. How did that come about? What did you learn through that process? So in early 16, we had um, a bit of a family tragedy. My mother got hit by a hit and run driver going to the mailbox. Yeah. So that was a bit of a wake up call for him and me. I think soul searching through the year for both of us, um, he realized that his true passion wasn't this. He was, he also has a, um, a premier soccer club that he runs. And so he wanted to go after that full time. And without saying it specifically, he started reaching out to people about buying our book. 
And we got a couple offers, including from Renters Warehouse. And it was a very fair offer for the way they um, run their business. For their playbook. Yeah, for their playbook. You know, I looked at it and I said, I get it. I get why you're giving me this number. But it wasn't a number. I wasn't ready to be done yet. And so, I frankly, this is something that I wouldn't do with a co-founder. This is because he's my brother. But I, in essence, doubled what um, Renters Warehouse offered to pay. I made him term us out. But I knew what the company was worth to the way that we were running it. That was kind of a, a brother hug. And then we, we went on our way. Wow. So you leaned in to make sure that particularly because it's family, there was no question about value and buyer's remorse, et cetera. Yeah. And I knew what it could be worth. It wasn't, it was what Renters Warehouse offered was a very, very fair price for where we were at and how they run their business. But we run our business different. And so we were already worth more than what they were offering. And I knew that there was more there. And so um, there's no way that I would even sell for the price I, I sold it to Zach right now based on how we're running our numbers and everything else. So well, it's great. It sounds like things are on a good on a good trajectory. Now, it is interesting when people say, make this commentary, because I've heard that both from Renner's Warehouse as well as other people saying about it, that the value is based on their playbook, which is interesting because ultimately it's your business and somebody else's playbook is not is not particularly germane unless you're bought into that system. If you sell in and you're staying there and you're operating in that playbook, that has significance. But prior to closing in a kind of a transaction, the way that another business runs or generates profit from the business is that's their business and your business is to maximize the valuation, right? Yeah, no, completely agree. But I, I think um, the reason that it works for them right now is because there's not a lot of buyers out there, right? Like for real, right? Like Home River's doing it in a different way, but the only people Home River's going to be interested in are bigger players, right? So they're going to give you a multiple on your EBITDA. On the other side, they're going to give you a door price based on um, what you're going to push through the system. This is the progression of acquisitions in a market. The market gets frothy enough to attract outside capital. The capital comes in in a spray and pray kind of manner and is is leveraging asymmetry of knowledge in the marketplace, right? Where the buyer has significantly more context in terms of what their playbook is, as well as what the the financial leverage, capital, et cetera. The next step in this industry is going to be for there to be institutionalized seller side knowledge and a lot more formalized clarity around the basic valuation apples to apples comparison. That's a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And I, I, you know, it's going in that direction. I don't know the timeline that it will, but you look over in Australia and they have established brokers that are helping set the value and helping matching buyers and sellers. And that just helps when you're selling to get a better price. There is absolutely going to be a dedicated business brokerage within this vertical. I predict that that's going to happen sometime within the next 12 to 24 months. And a shout out to Tom Sedlak for the talk they did at Broker Owner with the valuation model that he put forward. So moving on to where the business is at today, when we went through your numbers during the financial benchmarking study, this was a great story in my opinion. Because we saw a probably the most dramatic shift within a single time frame. We were looking at a 12-month period, and in that 12-month period, there was a really dramatic shift in profit. Would you just would you be willing to to share in terms of bottom line numbers the swing that we saw during the 2016 time frame that we looked at? Yeah, so we were running um, on our side. We were looking at we were running probably you know two to three percent profit margins when you factor in that. 
Uh, we took a little bit of a lower owner salary. And so making that adjustment that you guys make, we were running at like a 2 to 3% profit margin. By the end of the period, we were running at about a 25% profit margin. Amazing. I mean, we saw that and it was just shocking to see that level of swing in such a short period of time. And so we wanted to really kind of dive in and understand more about what drove that, how much of that was driven by an intentional plan to swing profit. Where was your headspace at during that time window? Did you look at the beginning of that period and say, this is unacceptable, we're absolutely going to drive big change here? Or was it a byproduct of a specific plan focus? Like break down what happened. I was just talking to my wife the other day. And if I was consulting to Robert C. White and company, it would be very, very clear for me to tell Robert C. White what they should do. But being Robert C. White and company, being the guy in charge, there's a disconnect there, right? And so very often I know what to do, but don't do it. The other side of it is when Zach and I were partners, in some ways I was deferring to what he wanted Robert C. White and company to be. And so when there was clarity that it was mine, then it was about, well, what do I want Robert C. White and company to be? I had to dig in on the, the property management side in a way that I hadn't before. So, you know, just from... Uh, so from an intentionality perspective, I had decided that we are going to go up market, um, that we are not going to keep going with um, the lower end, lower rent stuff. Um, we, have a, we still have a mix in our business, but we had more of that stuff beforehand. So we were transitioning a lot of those owners out. I decided that, frankly, our overhead was too high. So we made some adjustments on overhead and our utilization, our property managers to doors utilization wasn't right. And so we didn't backfill some people um, until we got the doors right and then started scaling up new hires after that as well. So all of the 17 change that you saw is attributable to cost changes on overhead, cost changes on direct labor and a mix Issue, right, so we're, we were firing um, and transitioning outdoors and replacing them with higher end doors. We've continued to make changes in this new year, and that's more on our pricing side. And so, with the in, an introduction from Todd Green and some direction from Todd Green, we have worked with Darren Hunter, and we're continuing to make some moves now on the profitability of a door and how to squeeze that out. So, but what you guys saw was more around the cost side and a mix side, right? Like if you. Uh, our multifamily doors on average uh, were at like maybe nine, nine fifty. Our single family home doors on average in condos were at about 16. We get rid of a lot of the lower end stuff and you shift up. Well, just based on the fact that we don't charge flat fees, you'd start changing your economics. Uh, pretty mm-hmm. So let's go back to talking about the vision, the why, the, the intention that really drove the change. When you saw that you wanted to make some changes, what's the purpose of, of profit? I mean, why not? keep growing as quickly as possible and keep profit down at 0%. You made this big shift. You invested a lot of effort. Let's just like, what, what's the purpose of profit for, for you, Luke, and for your business, for, what, for the game plan you're running? At the end of the day, a company's job is profit, right? And so <laughs> like, if we don't make profit, what are we doing? That's, that's called a not-for-profit. And they make profit too. Right? <laughs> the good ones make profit on that side too. So what I realize about this business is you can grow and make profit, right? Absolutely. And so what we are trying to do is grow profitably uh, with intention, right? And what does that mean? Like, so at business school, I had a professor and he said, strategy is what you say no to. And so if you are saying no to certain doors, like you are driving your profitability. I know that if I say yes to a door that only brings in $850, $950, even $1,100, that is order magnitude 
probably 10 times less profitable than a door that I bring in that's $1,900. Ooh. 10 Ooh. times. Oh, let's dig in, man. Like, so, so somebody in their mind is doing that math and they're like, how, how can that be? How can that be 10 times more profitable? Break that down for me. All right. So you have two factors going on. If a door is a door and they take the same amount of cost to manage, the door is a door. You have something that's bringing 90 to $100, right? Let's do flat fee. We're renter's warehouse. Right, so we we bring in a hundred dollars of of monthly revenue on our property management fees. Now they've got scale, and they're doing it in a way where they can push the cost down. They're always going to beat you. If you're a small shop, they are always going to beat you on cost. But so let's just say you're running at eighty bucks, fully loaded, eighty dollars. You've got twenty dollars of profit. If I'm looking at something that's two thousand dollars or nineteen hundred dollars or something like that, I'm going to be making at least two hundred, right? And so I, all that extra, that extra hundred dollars is all pure profit that falls to the bottom line. Now that's assuming, so that's a five X right there, right? It's a a little bit more than a five X. That's assuming that a door is a door. And the reality is it's not right. So I have to work so much harder for the door. That's, that's the 800, $900 door. The owner's more demanding. I have more maintenance. There's more deferred maintenance. It's harder to rent. I have more collection problems, so I'm getting paid for less total months of the year that I should. Everything about that business is not as profitable as somebody that's up market. It just is a fact. In my market, it's a fact. I would assume it's a fact everywhere. Like It makes sense in my head that it's a fact everywhere. The other side is we have a phrase in our company that the business we're building is an elf business. Easy, lucrative, and fun. Like that is what we are on, on target for. So every decision we're making is, is this owner elf? Is this property elf? Is this process elf? Is this vendor elf? Is this property manager elf? Right. And so we are trying to shift the entire game to be profitable growth. All right. So I love that. Let's rewind and take it one more time from a different slice. So you said you quoted your business teacher as saying strategy is what you say no to. Couldn't agree more. Let's address the guy that the guy or gal that is just so tempted by the lower income units. They're right. They're right there. Somebody's knocking on your door. It's the investor with the multifamily complex. It's section eight or whatever it may be. When that temptation occurs, what I hear you saying is, hey, the higher end places are going to be more valuable. And of course, who wouldn't want those? But it doesn't always feel like it's an equivalent choice, right? Let's talk about the dynamic of uh, the constraint of simply capacity, right? Every time you say yes to one of those lower income units, you are really dramatically reducing your ability to say yes to one of these higher income units because there's only so much time in the day that marketing budget, that sales bandwidth it's a precious resource that really is at the mercy of your existing operating capacity for most companies, fair? Absolutely true. And the other side about it is there's brand confusion if you were doing both, right? And so it, there's confusion to the owners, there's confusion with the tenants, there's confusion with the team. Yeah, with the team. Yeah, and the processes are different. Like what I have to do for a high-end home is different than what I have to do for a low-end home. Um, and so they're not materially different. But they are different. And so if you're going to be excellent at one, you have to sacrifice something on the other side. And so we've actually taken a different course. We, for a while, we found a strategic partner that wanted to go after some of the lower end stuff. So we were, um, we were referring to them. It wasn't a formal joint venture, but we set up a, a referral fee arrangement. Um, more recently, we actually, a different brother, a uh, nuclear engineer, decided he was done with his job, wanted to get into property management. He'd always been an investor, is very focused on 
uh, pursuing investors and everything else. And so now we have an arrangement where, in essence, we're incubating um, that side of the business underneath Robert C. White, and we're going to spin it off in a couple of years as an independent company. But it's branded differently. Uh, its processes are morphing and uh, to be more true to what those people that, that are doing. Because my market, the lower end stuff is typically two, three, four family, right? Uh, and the nicer stuff is typically single families or nicer townhouses. And so that's sort of the delineation that we're going after right now. So let's talk about how you might be able to adjust for the lower income properties. Is that a conversation where you're adjusting your cost structure? Or do you think that's a situation where the fees simply need to go up to account for the lower uh, monthly rent as well as the work? Both. Yeah, I think both. So I think um, there are things that you can do to streamline your operations that you just, it's more rules based, right? It's not as customized. Like I, on the higher end stuff, you have to do more handholding, right? I have a lot of accidental landlords. You know, you have more communication needs for them. You have everything else. Um, you can't have that on the low end stuff. You'll get killed. Right now, the, the lower end stuff, there's definitely benefits. And I'm seeing lower end, right? If you have investors that are investing in stuff that's ranging in rents from $900 to $1,200, and that's what they're going after, there's definitely advantages to that as well. Like negative churn, that's really, really helpful. Referral opportunities, a lot of those different things. There's a way that you can make that business work. So um, it's not like I don't want to be a part of that business. It's that Robert C. White is not that business. We are rolling something out that is going to be part of that, that is going to be driving after that business. And the economics of the business are different. The referrals are way more important. The um, making sure that you have investors that are continuing to buy and that you're influencing the properties that they're buying. And the reality is the lowest income stuff on that side, we say no there too, right? Like if something is just a rough building in a rough neighborhood, you're never going to be able to rent then you just don't take it on. You have to say no. Love that. So the clarity and the intention about the playbook that you're running is what you're shooting for here. You're not saying that the lower income stuff is bad. You're just saying there's a lot of confusion trying to do that in tandem with the higher end in terms of the processes, the culture, branding, positioning, might as well split it out. Makes sense to me. So talking about the other aspects of this shift, the original why was that you want this business to be profitable and you want it to be profitable today. I want to talk about this phrase that comes up over and over and over again. And that is, Hey, I get the profits good, but I got this really compelling angle and it's this, I am staffed for growth. That's why I'm not profitable because I'm staffed for growth. Luke, why didn't you just stay staffed for growth and just grow into the labor that you already had? We used to say it. <laughs> we said the same thing. We say we're staff for growth. We're staff for growth. I just think it's a miss. If the, your numbers are there, if you actually have the leads coming in in a predictable way that you're closing at the level that you need that staff, fine. But besides that, it's just an excuse. What you're doing is, uh, frankly, you're just sacrificing profit that you should be putting into your pocket or being able to reinvest into your business. If you're overstaffed on that side, you can't spend as much to go after leads. You can't do anything really on an optimal basis. Like Stafford Growth, if I knew that we were closing 40 doors a month, like some of the people that have been on your podcast, well, guess what? I know I need to bring on a new property manager every month because I need three months to train them up properly, et cetera, et cetera. Fine, Stafford Growth. You need to be ahead of that curve. But the reality is for most businesses that are our size, right? Two to 300, 100 to 300, however you want to say it. If you're growing 10 a month, you're probably growing pretty solid, right? Like there's a math here. 
Um, if you tell me how many doors you're growing a month and you tell me your retention rate, I'll tell you how big you're going to be. What I love about this business is it's got some elements like recurring revenue that are perfect and it's simple, simple math. If you're growing 100 doors a year on a predictable basis and you're, you're keeping doors for five years, then you know how big you're going to be. And you can figure out how long it's going to take to get there. And so fine, staff are where you are and it's predictable how you're going to grow. And so you can, you can actually budget out how you should be staffing over the course of the year unless something changes. So staff for growth, if it's not tied to actually planning and predictable numbers that you're going to be bringing on and how many doors you're losing, you're not being as smart about your business as you should. I love that answer. So your answer is it's not that staff for growth is bad. It's that it needs to be connected to the current rate of growth. It's when it's when it turns into I'm staffed for a rate of growth that I have never experienced for the last five, five years that I've been. And in. I don't have a plan for how to get it. Or the, right. or the skill set, or the abilities, or the budget, or all those. Yeah. yeah. So right now, I'll be completely transparent, right? So we're growing at about five doors a month, and it's seasonal, right? And we always have more this time of year. We want to grow 10 doors a month. We don't really know how to do it yet. We're, we're making the moves to grow at 10 doors a month. I'd love to grow 15 doors a month at some point. But the reality is, I haven't cracked that code yet. That's what I'm working on now is how figuring out how to predictably bring in leads that we're closing at a certain level that we can actually grow at that predictable level. And once we crack that, well, then guess what? I will be able to plan when we need to bring on people in a very predictable way. I'll be able to run the budgets and run everything else and make sure that we're still making money as we grow. I love that. So you're focusing on the relevant adjacencies for where you're at right now. What I mean by that is given the fact that you run a property management business, you're involved in operations, does it make more sense for you to focus on figuring out how to do that predictably? Or does it make more sense for you to figure out how to master Facebook marketing so you can drive more lead gen? The latter is sexier, makes for a great podcast, a great talk from the stage. But at the end of the day, is it more of a jump for you to do that or for you to figure out how to get profitable with the business that you already run and that you need to scale? I would argue that getting profitable is step one and that there is no point in scaling something that is not currently profitable. Here's the reality, right? So Dan Kennedy will say all the time, the person that wins is the person that can pay the most to acquire a client. And so if my economic engine is better than somebody else's economic engine, in the end, I'm going to win. And so if you don't figure out your economic engine early, you're in big trouble because fine, you can get Facebook leads really cheap now, but what happens when they change it? Or what happens when all of a sudden they change the algorithm and you can't get the lead at all and you have to go into a different channel that's way more expensive. And right now you ask the question all the time and I don't have a perfect answer, but I know that I would spend a thousand dollars a door and that's not counting sales labor. I just know I would based on how much I'm making per door. I probably go significantly higher than that. I don't want to, but I will. And, I, and I'll work up the curve. And the, frankly, the thing is, if I can spend $2,000 to take down a door and somebody else can only spend $500, I'm going to kill them, right? In my market, I'm going to kill them because I can be everywhere and I can do things that they can't do. I can send them a welcome packet on a lead coming in with a book and a gift and a this and a that. And I can pursue them in a way that another person can't if they can only afford $500. And that of what you just talked about affects the entire life cycle of the transaction. Not only does it allow you to close the business, it allows you to keep the business, the high touch practices that drive retention, reduce churn, and ultimately drive up your customer lifetime value and your customer lifetime profit. 
Very, very well said. The best marketer is going to win and the best marketer is empowered to have the budget that is a byproduct of operational efficiency. So I'm digging where you're at with this call and I'm digging- and not just operational efficiency, right? The other side of it is your pricing. People that are going discount pricing and people that are moving in that, in that model and they're winning based on discounting and everything else, they're going to have a tough road against somebody that has a stronger profit motive and a stronger, the, the revenue side, the pricing side works better. It increases the burden on your marketing function. If your CAC has to be low, that's just a different form of a subsidy. It means that you have to be even better at marketing in order to drive down your CAC. And it means that your options for paid marketing are smaller. All right, so we just covered a lot of ground here on the labor side, on the revenue side, talking about pricing, talking about fee maxing. Whenever whenever this fee maxing conversation comes up, you got a handful of people that are like, yeah, squeeze them, charge more. You got a handful of people that are like, no, I'm for the customer. And then you you got some people in the middle ground that are like, hey, if I can add more services and if I can add more value or if I can get paid for value that right now I'm not getting paid for in a way that is unfair to my business, you know, I'm all for it. Where do you sit in that in that conversation? What have you done dabbling into fee maxing? I was looking back, I was talking to um, my business partner on pricing and what we did in the first year, right? We had no background in this and we started flat fee and we pushed up our flat fee. Then we went percentage and we pushed up our percentage. Then we pushed up our leasing fee. We had no idea and we were sort of fishing and we landed on a middle ground that literally was, we weren't the most expensive, we weren't the, the least expensive. The reality is when we were doing a review, we actually, we actually mystery shopped, um, frankly, our whole market. And we were in the middle. We had people that are cheaper than us. We had people that are more expensive than us. But we were better. Objectively, we were better. We, we had lower eviction rates. We had lower vacancy rates. We had things that matter to the market and to the financial performance of our owners that we delivered stronger than anybody else. Going through that process and, and having some of my key employees be the ones that were doing those mystery shopping calls, it just became obvious that um, for the value that we were bringing to the client, we were undercharging. And not just, oh, because we give better service, you should pay more. But objectively, I can rent your house 30 days faster than somebody else can. And so I just drove revenue to you that is more than what the extra cost I have. So in all of our sales process, even though we are the top of the market now, we pushed all our fees up that we lead the market in all of our fees. We are talking about performance. We are talking about customer satisfaction and performance. And we have guarantees to back those things up. So we let them know right from the start, right? I don't have long-term contracts. I have a fast rent guarantee. I have a quality tenant guarantee. I have all these things. I explain them to them. So it's not just me saying, hey, I'm better. It's I'm backing it up too. I have guarantees that that make us accountable if we don't drive these things. But to your, to your overall question, I am trying to make my company as profitable as, as possible. And not, I'm not sacrificing. I don't want to be a 10-door company that charges 15%. But I want to be a growing company that is quite profitable, that has an economic engine that can win. We have additional services like eviction protection, rent loss protection, things like that, that are quality services that help us push up our overall fees. Um, we have pushed up fees. We've introduced new fees. I don't have any problem with it whatsoever. If we don't make strong enough profits, then why am I going to get caught? I, I won't be able to have opportunities for my employees 
I might not stay in this business. There are other things for um, us to do. And then our clients are going to have to go, frankly, find somebody else that isn't as good as Robert Sue is. I really think about it as just being a different problem or constraint to solve for. I think about the phrase, don't wish it was easier, wish you were better. You can either solve for the constraint of marketing, growth, success by charging less, being really good at operational efficiency, ramping up that marketing machine in, a, in, a, in as lean a way as possible, or you can solve for delivering service that is worthy of charging a much higher fee. It's just a different set of problems. The question is, both are hard. Both have their own set of challenges. It's going to be hard either way. Which of those two scenarios leads to a financial outcome that is more in alignment with your goals? So for us, it's the profit side first, then optimize the marketing machine. Right? That was a conscious decision that we can impact. We had enough doors that we could impact quickly the profitability of the book. Right. So um, those numbers that I was telling you about before, the 25%, um, that's before we did any of our FEMAX program. So we have done the first phase of our FEMAX program. And we're probably running at about 28% now. We, we took up our fees in total 25 to 30% across the board by adding new services and by pushing up fees where we are under market. Right? Now, are you talking about for new customers or for existing? No, we went back to the existing customers and we FEMAX the existing companies. I love it. I love it. Walk me through it. This, this, this is the section here where people are like, can't do it, won't work. They're all going to quit. They're going to fire you. So have you recently shut down your business? Did you recently lose all your customers as a result? Oh, no. So we lost one three family. One. One. And he was talking about selling next cycle anyway. We actually, so we worked with Darren Hunter. Todd Green introduced us. We worked with Darren Hunter. He's worked with a lot of NARPM folks across the board. Um, he says, and I truly believe from going through his program, that you will get the fee that you believe you're worth and that you can defend to a client. And so going through the process we did, it helps. We, we are a highly rated company in our market. And um, like I said, we did a mystery shop and we know that we deliver a very, very good service. And I, I'd argue probably the best in our market. It's not like I was trying to sell a Hyundai at Audi prices. The problem was we were an Audi and we were discounting it and pricing it not like an Audi. So we just had to re reset what we believed about ourselves and what prices that we should go after and then get us to where we're supposed to be. Now, that's a really good conversation, though. The, the metaphor that you just brought up, the self-awareness to know, are you a Audi selling at Ford prices or is it the other way around? Because the self-assessment is what allows you to understand what kind of change and shift you need to make. Is it simply viewing yourself as being worth what you are already worth, or is it growing into an aspirational level of value? There's no right or wrong. People exist on both sides of that equation. How would you encourage somebody to actually self, to realistically self-assess the level of quality of their existing services so as to know which of those two changes they need to make? Two things. I think survey your clients, right? If they're not happy with you, you're doing something wrong. But if people are happy with you, by and large, if you're getting, if you're doing net promoter score, or depending on how you are surveying your clients, you're going to have a good sense for how you're doing in their minds, right? And the other thing is I would go out to the market, your local market, and I would mystery shop. You can get a good sense for how you are relative to other people, right? So we don't think we're perfect. We, we're good. We're not great yet. We're on a path to being great. 
but we're better than, I'd argue we're better than everybody else in our market. And so there's an absolute um, question and then there's a relative question too, because what else can they get in the market? Um, So I would say uh, to your direct question, one, I'd be surveying and having conversations with our existing clients. What's, what do we do better than everybody else? How do you like us? Would you refer all those things? Net promoter score is a great one. Um, The other thing is to do some mystery shopping, understand what else is in the market, what they're doing, how you stand up against them and just be honest about it. The reality is what I realized is the, the real problem is, and you've talked about this, Jordan, with some of your guests, it's really hard to tell the difference between A, B, and C property manager. So the thing to crack is, um, especially with new clients at a higher price, is to be showing how you're different. Because when we were, when we were doing that mystery shopping, yeah, it was obvious the people that were complete jokers. But besides that, there was a tier of people that all sounded okay and sounded like they would be fine, but they didn't really sound that different. And then you are going on something you can compare as price. With our new clients and with our past clients, we've tried to change the conversation. We're talking more about performance. We're not just talking about what we do, it, the actual results around performance. We're talking about our guarantees. We're talking about, frankly, things that are more applicable to the, the actual person that you're speaking to, right? So I'm not talking generically about my property management services. If they're a person that is going overseas for an expat assignment for five years, we're talking about what we do to help them over the course of the five years and what's unique to them. So we speak as closely to them and what they care about as possible so that we sound different than any other property manager out there. I love it. So you're focusing on the qualitative and the quantitative and really you're bringing up the broader point that we as an industry have to get off of believing if you build it, they will come. If you objectively deliver the value, that's enough as opposed to accepting that you have to prove and remind and demonstrate value at every stage of this transaction, pre-sale, post-sale. What happens right after that person signs the agreement? It's an opportunity for buyer's remorse. I signed the agreement. I haven't heard from this person. They dropped the ball. I'm really wondering, are they going to deliver on the promise? That's the opportunity to affirm and to keep proving your value. So that one is great because you're not even saying that your cost structure needs to change. You're just saying that your articulation of what you are already doing, whether or not you're an A shop, a B shop, or a C shop, the articulation and communication of value could maybe lift you up by by a half point or, or a full point alone. Yeah, absolutely. So again, we worked with Darren Hunter. This is not something we invented. And so we had a a framework to use. There was, he, like I said, is very focused on mindsets. If you believe you are worth the fee, then you can sell it. You can. If the hardest part we had was with lease renewal fee, we were charging a lease renewal fee of 99 bucks. Originally it was nothing. We weren't charging a lease renewal fee at all. Then we went to $99 before Darren Hunter ever came around. And then we were doing our own fee max before um, talking to Todd and getting introduced to Darren. I think I'd gone to $199. He pushed us to go to a fee that I'm not even going to say on the podcast, but <laughs> you can go find it. It's on my website. <laughs> but I, all of us had a hard problem with it. And, and he was pushing us. All right, well, look, let me tell you how, why I think you're worth this fee. See if you agree with it. Right? If you don't believe it, then you're not going to get it. If you've, been, if you've been built on a flat fee or you're built on a discount model or you're built on whatever else, well, then you got to work on your head first. You won't be able to push up your fees. You just won't. Absolutely. It's just a different set of problems, right? I mean, what yes. you just articulated is a problem, but you chose to solve it. And what was the fruit that was on the other side of that? It could have been a different problem. It could have been 
I'm not going to change my viewpoint and we're just going to adjust our cost structure. And yes, absolutely. But you, but the cost structure, you can only push so far. Absolutely. And, it's a hard uh, limit. And a company at scale, like renters warehouse that has a model, like they do to service the client. You're not going to be able to touch that. If you are not going to try to scale to a significant level or figure out really creatively how you make your cost variable, my belief, the decision that we made is you go up market and you push up your fees and you make your company as profitable as possible. And then you have a lot of gasoline that you can throw on the fire when you're trying our next phase, which is let's figure out the marketing and sales side now, right? So we've been able to do it kind of um, without a really strong structure and everything else. Um, and now we're trying to organize, push up the tier, institutionalize that side of it. And we've got a re- really good economics behind it to make that side work. Done. Let's end with this. Let's end talking about the challenge of getting a strong yield on the management labor dollar. For everybody listening to this, the management labor dollar is what pays you, or if you're large enough, what pays your number one captain or lieutenant. When we think about all the capital that gets deployed on labor in the business, and that is by far the biggest expense, the direct labor are the people that are actually doing the work, the management labor are the folks that are guiding the direct labor. So it's kind of a, an engine and, and chassis metaphor, if you will. The management labor is difficult because the management labor oftentimes is wanting to graduate to higher and higher tiers of, of theoretical value delivery. The idea of working in the business versus on the business. Well, first off, the business has to be big enough to have somebody working on top of it, right? Working on the business at 100 doors just doesn't really work. You can work on the business for 5%, 10% of the time. But after you get over that hump of 200 doors, 300 doors, whatever it may be, where you do have that bandwidth, you have to make a decision. If you're going to graduate to truly being functional management labor, you have to ask yourself, am I deriving this income as a result of the fact that I am the owner or am I deriving it because of the fact that I'm actually creating money operationally? And if I'm doing that, how am I earning my keep? There are a very limited number of ways you can do that. You could do it with a killer sales marketing program. You commit to the discipline of operationalizing sales and marketing in your business, or you could do it through uh, increasing revenue on an incremental uh, basis, basically increasing your revenue per door or lowering your costs. But those are the rough parameters. You could also um, impact client service, which might lead to a reduction in churn. Those are more or less the levers that you have to pull. Most owners, when they jump into that capacity, don't make enough of an impact in those areas. Yeah. So, so talk to me. With those specific levers in mind, where do you plan on taking the company going forward over the next 12 to 24 months? What does the future of Robert C. White look like? operationalizing the sales and the marketing is our next step. We're continuing to make that big switch, which is shifting out the multifamilies in that um, separate company that I talked about. And that's going to happen over the course of the next 18 months. We've already made some big moves on that side, but the operationalization of the sales and marketing is the next focus. We've got some things still in the works on fee maxing, frankly, We haven't pushed on the tenants much. We haven't pushed on, we have a preferred vendor program, but we haven't pushed on that as much. But that is, but that's the 10% focus, right? Just to keep that economic engine really, really strong. The main focus is figuring out the marketing and the sales, operationalizing it in a way that we can attract those elf doors that we want, right? We have made a commitment that we are up market. 
How am I going after those guys, positioning myself the right way and closing them at a level that makes the overall machine work? And so that's the focus. When we crack that, then we're open to more offices. And so my strong um, desire is to have multiple offices throughout this region. I don't want to open up another office in Austin, Texas. So you can't hire me off there, Jordan. But I don't want to be far away. And actually, I think that there is more juice in being close, right? If I could open another office in Fairfield County, I'm going to get a lot more juice, even though I could stretch and be in Fairfield County in 45 minutes. And so once we can turn on the switch for the leads, the marketing and closing at a predictable rate, then we're going to start opening other offices nearby. Awesome. Love it. Hey, this has been great. I deeply enjoyed our ability to kind of wave in the numbers. I really appreciate your willingness to open up the kimono and share. Most people are willing to talk about doors, but not talk about revenue and certainly not talk about margin. You did. I'm grateful for that. I think this is a conversation that is so useful for the industry to have to really get clear and to get real on what's really happening under the hood. We're going to be watching your success and growth and I know it's going to happen. So the next time you're in Austin, let's break bread. Sounds good, Jordan. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming on the show. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.